0: Anger Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Wow, that's um, incredibly moving, isn't it? Incredibly moving. Can you turn with me to the book of Revelation and to chapter 2? Church in the 21st century is a church that's being persecuted. And the church in the 1st century was a church that was being persecuted. We have looked together on the first four mornings at um, the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. And we saw that God's mission for the world is from the heart of God through the heart of the church into the heart of the world. If you read on in the book of the Acts you'll see that uh, in the next 26 chapters the church moves out from Jerusalem uh, to the ends of the earth literally to the ends of the Roman Empire to Rome itself and see so that verse in Acts chapter 28 and so we came to Rome and as you read through those chapters you see two things. Number one you see the constant constant opposition that the church faced. Acts covers a period of about 30 years, and at each stage there is opposition and there is persecution. Someone has counted 50 examples of suffering during those chapters. Uh, uh, Campbell Morgan wrote a a series of sermons on, on Acts and uh, writing about the persecution of the church he uses an image very powerful image one morning he he got up early he was in the country and he walked across a field the snow had fallen overnight and it was it was uh, dazzlingly white and um, a a hare had been caught in a trap and it had gnawed away its leg and it had run across the, the 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 fresh snow leaving a trail of crimson blood in the red snow and Campbell Morgan said the, the track of Paul the Apostle across Europe as he took the gospel from one city to another was a track of blood, just like the blood of that hare through the new fallen snow. And, and always, always the church has faced persecution. And today, as, as our brother said a moment ago, there has, the, the church is under more pressure than it has ever been. And that's there in the Acts of the Apostles. The second thing, of course, which is very evident is that no matter how much the devil might throw at the church, no matter how much the world might try to crush the church, you cannot destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And the very last word in Acts, Acts chapter 28 and verse 31, the very last word is the word without hindrance. In other words, nothing could stop it. The gospel is unstoppable the Holy Spirit is unstoppable. Our God is unstoppable. And so we praise his name. Well, that's Acts. We've finished Acts. We're going to the end of the apostolic era, about 20 or 30 years. And now the church is facing severe persecution. Uh, there's been there's been persecution up until this point but probably at this stage they are facing the first systematic persecution John himself is on the island of Patmos which is a kind of a first century concentration camp it's just a rock in the middle of the uh, of the of the ocean and and as he as he gets up one day uh, on the Lord's day he's in the spirit and suddenly he has this tremendous vision of Jesus as he is now you'll know the vision Uh, Revelation chapter 1, this magnificent picture of Jesus in all his glory, in all his majesty, his face shining like the sun in all its magnificence. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I was dead. Brothers and sisters, don't think of Jesus as the little baby in the manger. Don't even think him as the one on the cross. Think him as he actually is, the Lord of glory our Jesus is ascended to heaven above all kings, above all powers, above all might and above all majesty. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. Hallelujah. And he lifts John from the ground and he says, I have a message for my churches." And the first message, of course, is the church at Ephesus, which is John's own church. And it's a, it's a, a sad message. Here's a church that has lost its first love. And then the Lord turns his attention to the church at Smyrna, and that's the one that we're going to read about this morning. Before we do, let me just tell you a few things about Smyrna. I think it's going to appear on the screen in a moment. I know it's going to appear in a moment. Oh, here we are. Okay, you see in the corner there the the island of Patmos, and you'll see the, the track of the seven churches. And uh, the, the church at Smyrna is number two there. It's a little further inland. Let me tell you three things about the church. Because the more we understand about the church, the more we'll understand, or the city rather, the more we'll understand about the church. The first thing about Smyrna is that it was a very famous and prosperous city. It was the birthplace of Homer. Now, I know you're very educated in Northern Ireland, so you know that, know that Homer has got nothing to do with the Simpsons. He is the, he is the, the founder of Western literature. And traditionally, this was where Homer was born. It, it made its money through the sale of myrrh myrrh was a painkiller it was a very rare commodity and so it had a monopoly in myrrh and so it became a very wealthy city and therefore it had beautiful wide marble boulevards and beautiful buildings people commented when they arrived in smyrna they would walk down these boulevards and be amazed at the beauty and the magnificence of the place remember that a very very wealthy city one of the most wealthy cities in the ancient world for its size number two it, its nickname was Resurrection. City. That was the nickname that was given to this, this city because twice in its history it had been destroyed by an earthquake and it was so wealthy had, it had been reborn and rebuilt itself. It had risen like a phoenix from the flames even more magnificently than when it had first been, uh, uh, first been destroyed. So it had the, 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 the nickname, the Resurrection City, it was twice rebuilt. Those are the ruins of the city. This is the city today, the city of Ismir. Um, 40 years ago, I used to pray in a little prayer group for Turkey, and there were very few believers in Turkey in those days, but there was a small Christian church in Ismir in Smyrna. Third thing about the city of, uh, of uh, Smyrna was that it was a very religious city. There was a, there was a road through Smyrna that was uh, full of temples. It was known as the Road of the Gods. And in particular, there was a strong Jewish community, and it was the Jews who, who actually uh, instigated the persecution of the Christians. You'll see that. He speaks about a synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but they're not real followers of Messiah. They don't recognize Jesus as Messiah. And so they went to the Roman authorities. The, Ro- the Jews were afforded a certain amount of freedom. And, and they were, they were protected, and, and, and for a while, Christians were kind of under the umbrella of Jewish protection, but the Jewish leaders went to the Roman authorities and said, these Christians, they've got nothing to do with us, and so the Romans began to persecute the Christians at the instigation of the Jewish synagogue. That's why he refers to the synagogue in that way. So all of those things are are picked up on in the letter. The more we understand the the city, the better we'll understand the letter. So let's read the Word of God together. This is Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And this is the word of the living God. Let's join together for a moment in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that it is true and it is living and it is authoritative and we can trust it in its entirety. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I guess that photograph's uh, designed to make me feel at home. Uh, That's Birmingham. I don't quite know why it's up there. Maybe we could lose that otherwise they'll just be looking at Birmingham and forgetting about me won't they um, I, I grew up in Birmingham I told you that didn't I can you remember what you had for your 14th birthday anybody remember what gifts they had for their 14th birthday there are one or two younger people scattered around the side who may possibly yes you got a clock brilliant excellent right, it was like your age, it will never stand still. Well, most of us know exactly what that means, don't we? I I can remember my 14th birthday. I'd been a Christian for a couple of years. My auntie, who wasn't a Christian, said, what would you like? And I said, "I'd I'd like a Christian book. So she went to a bookshop, a Christian bookshop, and she asked them for a good book, and they gave a couple of selections, and she looked at the one that looked the most boyish, uh, and she thought would interest me the most, and she brought it, and she gave it to me, and at the age of 14, I opened the present, and there it was, Tortured for Christ, by Richard Wernbrandt. And it was a tremendous book. Who's read that book? Absolutely fabulous. It's A book about a man who was persecuted for his faith, a Romanian pastor thrown into prison for 14 years, he was persecuted. For 14 years, all he had to do was to deny the name of Jesus and he'd be set free, and yet he refused. And he was literally tortured for Christ. They, they beat the soles of his feet so that he could barely stand. They put him inside a kind of a wardrobe where there were nails hammered into it, and if he stood perfectly erect, the nails would just touch his naked body. But, but, but he'd been beaten. He could barely stand. He was starving. And he would fall and impale himself on the nails, and they'd pull him out, and they'd pour water on his face, and they'd put him back in again. When he eventually was released and he went to America, he actually took off his shirt to show the scars all over his body, the scars of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And there are all other things that I, I won't go into, the awfulness of the, of the torture that this man went, man went through because he loved the Lord Jesus. And yet he wrote this, and this was the thing that just kind of blew me away. He wrote this, There were some nights when I would sit in my cell. It was bitterly cold. I was hungry, I was thirsty, there wasn't a part of my body that didn't ache. And yet as I sat there in the darkness, I would sing songs of joy. They could take my freedom, they could take my possessions, they could take my wife and my children, they could take my health and my dignity, they could even take my life. But they could not take from me the touch of, of his nail-pierced hand. They could not take my Saviour from me. They could not take my God from me. I remember reading those words and being deeply moved and thinking, if you have Christ, you have everything. You can have everything in the world, and if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. But if you have Christ, no matter what you face, you have the greatest treasure of all. And I'm sure we can testify to that this morning, but but so often it is the persecuted church, the church that suffers, that is able to make the clearest testimony to the preciousness of Christ. And that's what we see in this church at Smyrna. I I want us to look at this church together this morning. I've chosen it deliberately because this is the persecuted church. This is the church as it faced suffering in the first century. This is the shortest of all the letters that the Lord wrote. It's also the warmest. There are no faults or criticisms or even warnings for this church. It's not a perfect church and yet it's a church that receives the unconditional affirmation of the Lord Jesus. As we look at this church together, I want you to see two things. Very briefly, very briefly, Christ's assessment of the church, and then secondly, Christ's assurances to the church. Look at his assessment of the church, first of all. Look at verse 9. Here is the heart of his assessment I know what's going on in your church. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know, says the Lord. And he describes the verse, uh, the church in verse 9. Now remember what we said about Smyrna. Smyrna is a beautiful, magnificent city. It's a city that's wealthy. It's a city that, 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 that is just kind of takes your breath away. You walk down the boulevards and, and you see the sun glinting on the marble towers and you kind of think, wow, what a great city this is. I wonder what the church will be like. And so you turn up at church on a, on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock expecting the church to reflect the city expecting the church to be a beautiful building like this with air conditioning and BMWs in the car park and the people really rather well healed. And what do you find? You find a people who are threadbare and, and feeble and weak and the church is small and the church is struggling and they don't have many eminent citizens in the church. The church is weak and the church is feeble and the church is under extreme pressure. The church is a suffering church. The church is a persecuted church. Look at verse 9, look at the words that he uses. Affliction and poverty and slander. Those are the three words that describe this church. The word affliction is translated elsewhere as tribulation. The tribulation comes from the Latin word tribulum. The tribulum was a form of persecution that the, or a form of torture that the Romans came up with. They would lie you flat on your back and they would put a board on your chest and then they would begin to put weights on the board one weight after another until the weights became so heavy that you could barely breathe and if you refused to tell them what they, they, they wanted you to tell them, they would continue putting weights until soon the, the ribcage would just uh, uh, crack and you would die. That's the tribulum. And this church is in tribulation. It's under extreme pressure. More and more and more pressure. Today, as our brother said a moment ago, There are a number of churches that are going through suffering in our world. 60 countries, 250 million Christians and more facing persecution today. I'm not a prophet, but let me tell you something that I'm completely convinced of. Somewhere in the world today, someone will die for the gospel. It will either be an act of, of, of random violence, or they will die through the persecution of being put in a place where they're starving to death. You take North Korea, which is number one on the, on the persecution watch list of the world. In, in North Korea today, there are whole concentration camps that are designed just for Christians. And there are brothers and sisters there being tortured every single day, just like Richard Wernbrandt, for the name of Jesus. You take a whole range of countries there in, in the Middle East, and, and I don't want to go into details, we hear much, much more about that tonight, where Christians are suffering for their faith tribulation persecution pressure not quite the same in this country but one of my great friends in Birmingham is a man called uh, Mohammed Hussein Shamin. and he's a Christian can you imagine a Christian with a name like that well when he became a Christian he didn't change his name he kept his name but he came to faith in Christ when he first became a Christian he was terrified of his family finding out And uh, when his dad heard rumors, he he rang him up and he said, is is it true, Shamim, that you're a Christian? And he was so terrified, he said, no, dad. And he put the phone down. And immediately he knew he shouldn't have said that. And so he went to see his father and he said, dad, I I have to tell you, I've become a Christian. I've trusted Jesus as my savior. And his father said, you are completely dead to me now. I never want to see you again. And he shut the door in his face and Shimeem never saw his dad again. He said, the worst time, the most difficult time in all my life was when my dad was dying and I went to the hospital and they said, you cannot see him. He will not see you unless you renounce Jesus. Can you imagine that? To stand by your father as he dies, or, or you have to renounce the name of Jesus. And he said, I couldn't do that. I couldn't renounce my savior and my king. And so he walked away. Brothers and sisters, there is severe persecution all over the world today and even in our own land. That's the first thing that marks out this church. Look at the second thing that marks it out, poverty. This is a church that is going through poverty. There are a number of Greek words for poverty. One means to to have very little, one means to have nothing at all. And it's that second word which is used here. It's used elsewhere to describe a beggar who crouches and cowers and begs. Someone who is totally destitute, someone who has nothing at all. And that's what this church is like. Because of persecution, they've lost their goods and they're going through extreme poverty. Yeah, just, just, just an aside, this is a real slap in the eye, isn't it, for the so-called prosperity gospel. You know what the prosperity gospel is? If you turn to your, 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 your God channels on the TV, which, which have some good things but some nonsense as well. Do you, do you ever watch the God channels? You really do have to be very careful at some of the stuff that's said there. Some of it is really helpful and some of it is, is poison. The so-called prosperity gospel is that God doesn't want anybody to be sick, anybody to be uh, poor. He wants his people to be healthy and wealthy, and, and if you're a Christian, that's what you should have. And I and, and, and just thank you so much this morning. It's been wonderful to be with you guys and, and, and to hear your prayers for my wife, and, and I believe that God could heal her. But I can't demand it, can I? I can't go to God and say, that's what you've got to do. I have to trust him and, and, and trust him in the darkness. God is sovereign, and sometimes his purposes are painful, and sometimes we accept that. I was speaking to the guys at the Baptist church on, on Sunday morning. I was preaching on healing once and I do believe in divine healing and I mentioned this at the, at the service and after I'd finished, this man came up to me and he, he caught me on the door and he said, that's complete nonsense what you were saying. God God, 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 always wants Christians to be well. No Christian should be poor. No Christian should be sick. No Christian should be depressed. No Christian should ever have a cold. No Christian should have have flu. No Christian should ever wear spectacles and no Christian should ever lose their hair. Which is a bit depressing, really. And this is a completely true story. I said, Look, I can't talk to you now. When can I talk to you, please? When when can we meet? And this is absolutely true. He said, Oh, you can see me anytime. I'm on permanent sick leave from work. (laughs) See, the theology doesn't quite stack up. But here is a church, and the Lord doesn't say to them, He doesn't say to them, Look, if you had a bit more faith, you wouldn't be like this. I don't want you to be poor, I don't want you to be destitute. I want you to be rich. You should have a big bank account. No, he says, I commend you because for your faith you've suffered. We had a lady in our church who'd been a missionary with with Amy Carmichael. And when she died, uh, her sons came to to look at her. She was in a little Christian care home. Her sons came to look at her possessions and all she possessed was one change of clothing, a couple of books and a well-turned Bible. Just about enough money in a bank account to have a very very, uh, uh, small funeral. And, and, and so we, we had this funeral. And at her, at her funeral, her son stood up and said, Mom didn't leave very much as far as material possessions were concerned, but, but that's okay, She said, he said, because Mom didn't worry about material possessions. She was so delighted with Jesus. She was so satisfied with Jesus. Having Jesus, she had everything. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful about what we say, don't we? When we look at some of our brothers and sisters in the world and we make all these claims, and yet they're suffering and they're suffering in this way. And what's the third thing that he says? Well, it's not only tribulation and, and poverty, it's slander. They are slandered, slandered by those who are Jew, who claim to be Jews that are not. Uh, the word is, is literally blasphemed, damaged by words. Outrageous things are said about them. Can I say that, that increasingly in our own culture, we will be slandered if we're faithful to the gospel? You know, we believe in a whole series of things that are outrageous as far as the world is concerned. We believe the Bible is true, don't we? Well, well, some of you do, okay? I hope all of you do. And that's outrageous today. How can you believe in in any truth when when truth is such a kind of a slippery commodity? No, we believe in absolute truth. We believe a divine God, a a holy God, an infallible God, a, a sovereign God has given us an infallible book. We believe in that. We believe that Jesus is the only way to God, don't we? one name under heaven by which men can be must be saved we believe that there is a place called heaven and we believe that there is a place called hell we believe that in the cross Jesus is not just setting an example to show us the love of God he is bearing the wrath of God in his own person we believe that sex is a wonderful gift from God designed for a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage A man and a woman, notice. Not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It is a gift from God and marriage is as God has designed it and nothing else. That's outrageous today, isn't it? Well, it is, but let me tell you, in the the, the world out there, to believe that you must be narrow, there must be something wrong with you. And increasingly, we can expect that kind of stuff. I, I believe that in our own country, we've had it easy for a long, long time. I don't think that's going to remain so for forever. I can see persecution on the horizon even in our own nation. I can see it in all sorts of ways. And I don't want to over-dramatize it. We're certainly not being suffering as as our brothers and sisters are in other countries. But I can see it getting harder and harder to be faithful to Jesus. And the question that will will then come, are you willing to stand for the name of Christ no matter what the cost might be? So here's a church that is all of those things. But did you notice that little verse that he says in the middle there? Or that little phrase in the middle, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet... You are rich. You see what he's saying there? Although you have have little in the eyes of the world, although you're just despised and insignificant, spiritually you're rich. Brothers and sisters, do you realize how rich you are this morning? In Christ? Do you realize that, that you are justified? that covers the past. It doesn't just mean that you're forgiven and cleansed and healed and restored. It means you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, he doesn't see sin. He sees the perfect, peerless righteousness of his Son into your account. He doesn't see anything wrong in you. He sees you in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And you are being sanctified, changed every day into the likeness of Jesus, changed to be more like the Saviour, more like the Son of God. And you will be glorified one day in brand new resurrection bodies. We will see the Lord forever. We will gaze on him with new eyes in the beauty and the glory and the majesty of heaven. God the Father, the creator of the ends of the earth, is our Father. We can turn to him, we can cry, Abba, Father. We, we know that He has plans and purposes for us and those plans and purposes will never be defeated. God the Father is for us. Nothing will ever separate us from His love and God the Eternal Son loves us and prays for us and, and cares for us and, and intercedes for us and has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us and He's watching over us. That The Lord of glory is our Saviour and our friend and our King and our brother and the captain in the fight and the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life dwells in our hearts. The seal of God God in the heart of man, the life of God in the heart of man. And we have the Word of God with all its promises, its, its, its wonderful encouragement, and we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. We're a soldier in his uh, army and a, and a stone in his temple and a sheep in his flock. And we have a wonderful inheritance that will never perish or fade or die away, which is reserved in heaven for us. When we look down, there's no hell. When we look back, there's no sin. When we look on, there's no judgment. Christ is coming back for us. We're saved and sealed and satisfied and secure. (laughs) Excuse me, hallelujah. Isn't it wonderful being a Christian? Isn't it marvelous knowing the fullness of all these blessings in Christ? And should we be stripped of everything else in this world, nothing can take from us the touch of his nail-pierced hand. Nothing can take from us our Savior and all the riches that are in him. So that's Christ's assessment of the church. What about his assurances to the church? Well, will you notice five things? And all of these encouragements, all of these five things are focused on Jesus himself. These five things are a blessing that, that, that is focused on who Jesus is. Let me go through them very briefly. Number one, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. To the angel, verse 8, to the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now remember, this is the resurrection city. This is a city that puts a great deal of emphasis uh, on resurrection. And what does he say? Jesus is the one who died. The tense of the verb means there was a moment in time when he faced death, and he tasted death, and he went through death, and then he rose again, and he's alive forevermore. Just turn back for a moment to the first chapter. John has this magnificent vision, and at the end of verse 16, he fell on his face, or he sees his face shining like the sun in his brilliance, and when I saw him, verse 17, chapter 1, I fell at his feet as though I was dead and he put his hand on him he said don't be afraid I am the first and the last now there's John in the dust there's John lying face down and and in a magnificent way the Lord of Glory stoops to where John is and he lifts him up it's a wonderful picture of salvation actually David in Psalm 3 speaks of God as my glory and the lifter of my head in the old days when you came before the king if you would offended the king you would fall on your face before the king And the king could click his fingers and one of the soldiers would take you out and you'd be executed. But if the king decided to have mercy, he might point at a soldier or point at a courtier and the courtier would come to where you were in the dust and the courtier would lift your face and you'd see the face of the king. You'd know you were forgiven. But if the king wanted to show particular mercy, he would come to where you were from his throne and the king himself would lift your face and he would smile upon you and you would know that you were forgiven you would know that you'd come back under the smile of the king. And and, and David speaks of God as my glory and the lifter of my head. He'd sinned in tremendous ways, and yet God lifts his head. He knows he's forgiven. And here is John, and he's in the dust, and the Lord of glory lifts his head. And he looks on the smiling face of Christ. And then what does Christ say? Look at how he identifies himself. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. When it comes to death, he did die. But now he is alive. He is alive forever. He's conquered death. And at his belt hangs the keys of death and Hades. I don't know what you like doing on holidays. Do you like going down to the seaside and, and catching the sun? Is that is that what you like to do, most of you? I don't like the sun and I don't like the seaside and I, I, I find it difficult on holidays. So what I normally do is look for two things that make a holiday. One is a library, and the other thing is, the other thing I really love going to is, is, is graveyards. I just do you love graveyards? They're wonderful. They're wonderful. We we were up in uh, in Glasgow for a wonderful holiday once, best holiday we had, I think, for a long time, and, and and I discovered that in Glasgow there is the best cemetery in the whole world. It's called a necropolis, a city of the dead, and I said to my wife, "Tomorrow we're we're going to spend a day in the necropolis." <laughs> And she said, I don't want to go to a cemetery. I said, you're in a wheelchair. You go where you're taken. And so we, we, we had a morning there. We had a morning there. And, and, we just, and there are some famous people buried there. I just loved cemeteries. They're wonderfully quiet places. I have my quiet times if we're near a cemetery. You know, you can read the Bible and you can pray and nobody disturbs you. Occasionally, they come and dig a hole. But apart from that, it's just wonderful. And, and, and there are old graves up in the necropolis in Glasgow where, where people have been buried uh, hundreds or, or, or hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And some of them are are, are kind of little kind of uh, uh, places where there are these old railings around and these great big old doors and these great big old locks. And if you wanted to get near to the gravestone, somebody would have to unlock the gate. And I kind of think of this little Glaswegian cemetery keeper with these great big bunch of keys at his his belt and he you know maybe the keys wouldn't even work anymore because it's been rusted away and then as I look at that and as I think about that I think about that the gates of death which are final and certain and, 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 and terrifying and yet there's one person in this universe who holds at his belt the keys of death and it's Jesus Christ and one day he will summon us all from the grave and if we're his sons and daughters, we will be with him forever. He holds the keys, and here's a church that's facing persecution, and just like those Egyptian brothers taken out to be killed on the beach, many of these men at Smyrna are probably going to die for their faith, and what will be their last word? Jesus, saviour, king, conqueror of death. Brothers and sisters, he's risen from the dead we saw that yesterday. I I need to be fair to to my my teachers at Cambridge. There was one of them who believed in the resurrection. He was a man called Charlie Mole. If you've heard of Hadley Mole, he was a descendant of Hadley Mole. And he was a little man. He was about that tall. He looked like um, a a piglet in Winnie the Pooh. And and when he lectured, he used to have to stand on a box and peer across the top of the box. And he did the, the main lectures that everybody who did theology in Cambridge had to do, New Testament theology and ethics, two years of lectures. And he would always start off these lectures standing on his little box and saying, uh, ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to be studying New Testament theology and ethics. But let me say this, he would say, if Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, there would be no New Testament theology and ethics. If he had not risen from the dead, there'd be new, no New Testament. If Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, there would be no church. But Christ is risen. And then because he was quite a posh Anglican, he would say, hallelujah. hallelujah but hallelujah Christ is risen and the church is evidence of that and therefore no matter how severe the persecution will be the church cannot die because the living Christ has the keys of death and of Hades and death can't really hurt God's people ultimately because he's the conqueror of death well, time's going on quickly. Let me look at the second thing. Here's the first encouragement to these persecuted Christians. Jesus is alive. Second encouragement, verse 9, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, now, now this isn't just the knowledge of, of observation. It's not just that the Lord says, well, I can see at a distance what's going on. This, if I could say it, is, is the knowledge of experience. Jesus knows these things. He knows what it is to be crushed and afflicted. That's what he went through on the cross. He knows poverty. The foxes have have holes and uh, and so on, but but, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He became, uh, although he was rich, he became poor that we might experience his blessing. He knows what it was to be slandered, to be told that he was insane or or demon-possessed. This saviour knows, he understands whatever his people go through, he's not at a distance. A very powerful painting that we saw, Jesus is there with his people. And I say to you this morning, whatever you are going through this morning, whether it is physical or emotional or spiritual, whatever pain you may be going through this morning, the Lord is standing with you. The Lord will never let you go. The Lord will never desert you. He will never forsake you. When my daughter was a little girl, we just moved to, um, to, 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 to Worcester. And we used to walk up on the Malvern Hills. And she was about three and I'd hold her hand and she'd say, Daddy, very independently, Daddy, I don't want you to hold my hand, I want to hold your hand, which meant that I didn't grab her hand, I put out my finger and she held onto my hand and so we walked along with her holding on my finger, which was fine until we got to the dangerous bits where if she'd had a tumble she would have been injured, so I would say at those bits, darling, now I'm going to hold your hand and I'd take her little hand in mine and I'd grip it and she'd say, Daddy, you're hurting me. I said, well, I'm holding you firmly because I don't want you to fall. And as we walk past those dangerous bits, I would walk sure-footedly and this little girl would be holding, being held tightly and firmly in my hand. Listen, brothers and sisters, we have to hold on to Jesus. Of course we do. But in the end, when we feel feeble and frail and we feel as if we can't hold on any longer, it's him who will hold on to us. And he will never let us go. And he will never let his persecuted church go. And he will never let his suffering church go. He loves his church far too much to ever let it go. And he knows and he understands. And our sympathetic high priest is praying for us. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Three more things. Not only is Jesus alive, not only is Jesus no. Number three, Jesus is reigning. Jesus is reigning. Look at verse uh, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Now, 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 now you could read verse 10 almost as an apology. I'm sorry, the devil's going to attack you, and there's not much I can do about it. I don't read it as an apology at all. He, he warns them about the devil, and the book of Revelation makes it very clear that the devil is real. You know why is there why is there persecution of the church? Well, if you look at uh, the book of Revelation chapter twelve, you see this picture of this great big dragon, this huge dragon, which is a symbol of the devil. I don't know if you, have you ever seen the, the the film Jurassic Park? You're not sure about that, are you? i only watched it for research purposes but at the point at one point this, this this great tyrannosaurus rex makes its makes its appearance and as it walks along the the little cup of water in the front of the car kind of uh, moves and you see this great big beast well that's the picture in in revelation 12 the devil is fierce and he is powerful and he is mighty and he hates the church That's why there's persecution. He despises the church. He hates God. He's a rebel against God. He hates Jesus. He can't pull Jesus from his throne, so what will he do? He will attack the bride of Christ. He will attack the people of God and he will do everything in his power and we need to be realistic about that. But what Jesus is saying to his church here is that I'm in control. It will be 40 days and no longer. Just a short period of persecution and then it will be over and I will protect you. Listen to me, whatever the church goes through, ultimately the Lord's in control. Whatever happens in our lives, ultimately God is in control. Isn't that true? Even today, in a place like North Korea, God is still sovereign. You know, the, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't, You know we, we, we saw on the first day, God's doing wonderful things in South Korea. The Holy Spirit doesn't stop at the border do nothing i believe that the church in north korea is probably being blessed by god more than maybe any other church in the world today because in the secretness of its persecution it is seeking after god knowing his grace you wait until god brings down the border in north korea you see what god has been doing there just as he did in china during all those years of darkness sometimes the church seeks to seems to fall into a into a tomb And the the stone is rolled in front of the tomb and it looks as if it's dead. What happens when you roll the stone away? God's been doing something amazing in the darkness and out it comes in fullness of life. God is sovereign and we need to trust Jesus that he's doing something for the good of his church even in the most terrible circumstances. A few years ago now, I suppose it was, my wife and I were coming back from a church meeting. We'd been preach I'd been preaching. It was a Sunday night. It was 8 o'clock. Just got the news coming on, and we were in the car, and suddenly my wife screamed because there was a car coming towards us on the wrong side of the road. So I I swerved to try and avoid it, but it hit the side of me, and we span round. We kind of almost left the ground, span round, and ended up in the wrong direction in a ditch. The the, the bags went off, you know, these things, bang, bang. And you could smell the, the, the kind of uh, the, the gunpowder or whatever it is that blows them up. And, and then there was noise, and then there was silence. And then my wife said, Are you alive? <laughs> and I said, Yes. Are you? <laughs> and she said, Yes. And then she said, You're going to get so many sermon illustrations out of this, aren't you? <laughs> You see, That's what preachers do, aren't they terrible? Here's the sermon illustration. Our lives are in the hands of God. If God had wanted us to go to home, to heaven, that, that would have, we'd have gone. Could quite easily have been like that. But he hadn't finished with us yet. He hadn't, his purposes were still, we're in the hands of God. However long we live, our days are in his hands. You can't live a day longer, you can't live a day less. It's wonderfully encouraging to wake up in the morning and think that today I'm in God's hands and if today is the day that I'm going to die well that's okay because I'm going to heaven and if it's another day well okay I'll serve God today. The Lord reigns and he reigns even in the most terrible circumstances. Here's the fourth encouragement. Not only is Jesus alive, not only is he known, not only does he reign, but Jesus will reward his people. Be faithful even to death, verse 10, and I will give you the crown of life. All the pain, all the suffering, all the sorrow in this world is nothing compared with the glory that's going to come. Chuck reminded us on, on, on a, was it Wednesday evening, I think, that, that you know, we have certain things that we can only do in this world. One of the only things we can do in this life is, 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 is get treasure in heaven. So don't waste your life. Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 90, verse 12, help us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, God doesn't give us years or months or weeks, He gives us days. He gives us little packets of time, 24 hours long. Here's a day. What are you going to do with today? I, I, I used to know an elderly Christian lady who, when she was working, made a promise to God that every day of her life she would witness to somebody. Every day of her life she'd give a tract or, or give a word to somebody. She worked in a shop so she got all sorts of people going in and she would always be having I mean, opportunities to talk about the Lord. And then, and then uh, she, she retired and it was a little bit more difficult and then she was confined to her home. So do you know what she used to do? She used to pull out the telephone directory and, and just cold call people, cold call evangelism and she'd ring them up and, and she was just a sweet, sweet old lady and she'd say, Hello? i'd like to talk to you and 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 people would kind of be brought it and then after about three minutes of talking to them and saying all sorts of things she said now i want to tell you about jesus people felt it was impolite to put the phone down so they heard the gospel Mm -hmm. evangelistic cold calling well well praise god for that i couldn't do that probably you couldn't either but 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 she'd said to the lord i don't want to waste my life every day i want to tell somebody about you every day what are we doing looking for that crown of life Here's the last thing, and this is a kind of a, almost a sting in the tail, isn't it? Look at verse 11. He who hasn't heard, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Here's a church that's facing persecution. It's going through the most terrible suffering, and, and, and it's likely that in the near future some of its members are going to die for their faith. They're going to shed their blood, and he says to them, but, you know, many blessings and many things to remember, but, but when you finally come down to it, remember this, whatever else you face, whatever you have to go through in this life, at least you are not going to go to hell. You will not have to experience the second death. Because that's what the Bible means when it talks about the second death, it's talking about hell. There is a physical death, which we go through, and then there is a death which is beyond death, it's the death further than death, it is the death of eternal separation from God. And as we come to the end of these morning Bible readings, as we come to the end of thinking about uh, the mission of the church, the, 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 the most serious thing that we can remember is the reality of eternal things. Now we've been here this week um, I, I went for a walk down, the, down by the sea this morning and I sat there just thinking and praying. And as I was doing so, a, a, a young mum came by with two little boys. One was about that tall and one was about that tall. And, and she, she got them by the boats and she was taking a photograph. And I had deja vu. I suddenly remembered when my wife was young. Um, shouldn't say that about your wife, should you? When she was a bit younger than she is now. <laughs> and we had two little boys and they were about like that and about like that. And she went off holding the hand, and I thought, wow, 25 years ago, 25 years ago, that's when my boys were like that, and where have those years gone? You know, time just, just flies away, and this world is here for a moment, and we have one opportunity to share the gospel, and then there is eternity. And if there's one book in the Bible that makes the reality of hell Absolutely, abundantly clear is the book of Revelation. You know, people talk about, well, God in the Old Testament, that's the God of justice and wrath, and God in the New Testament, that's the God of grace and mercy. And, you know, the little girl who said, I don't like God in the Old Testament, I prefer God in the New Testament when he became a Christian. You know, that sort of thing. Now, the God of the Bible doesn't change, his character doesn't change. In the Old Testament, he's a God of infinite grace and wonderful mercy. He's long suffering, slow to anger, abundant in mercy, and he's a God of judgment. Look at the flood, look at Sodom and Gomorrah, look at the fall of man. When you come to the New Testament, if anything, both of those things are ratcheted up. So God's grace is more gloriously displayed in the New Testament, in the cross of Christ. What does does God's grace look at? Look like it looks like Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here is love, not that we love God, but that he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is love. And yet at the same time, The New Testament reveals the reality of eternal conscious punishment. Let me tell you three things about hell today. Number one, there are people in hell. There will be people who will go to hell. It is a real place. It's not a theoretical thing sent to just frighten us. It's a real place. And number two, it is a place where there is no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. Where where death finds us, eternity binds us. And number three, it's eternal. It is forever forever and ever, and ever. Spurgeon described as a little boy falling from a tree, and he said that the journey from the, from the branch to the ground was frightening, but it was only short. And then he came across those, those, those pictures of hell as being falling away from God forever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And he says to these Christians who are suffering, whatever you face in this world, it is nothing compared with the terrors of hell, and you have been rescued from that. You will not taste the second death. Christ has died in your place. He's taken the punishment. He's tasted hell itself so that you never will. So go and tell men and women, go and tell the people who persecute you about Jesus. They're to be pitied more than being feared. As we go into this world, we go with a gospel, which is the only hope. And everybody we talk to and everybody we meet every day of our lives needs to hear that gospel. And they need to hear that Jesus is risen. You know, we live in a world which is terrified of death. And he makes all sorts of jokes. You know, the, the undertaker who wrote at the end of his letters, not yours faithfully, but yours eventually, because everybody's going to die. The world is terrified by death. And yet Jesus has risen from the dead. And we have a gospel to proclaim. And it's good news, isn't it? It's not, it's not just that, that, that there's sin and there's judgment. It's sin forgiven. It's judgment dealt with and Christ is alive forevermore. I, I, I heard a, a, an apocryphal story. It's not a true story, but I, I kind of like, to, like to, to think about it, of Joseph of Arimathea coming home on the first Good Friday. And he comes back to his wife, and his wife says, it's been a terrible day today. And Joseph said, yes, it's been a terrible day. They, they crucified the, the Lord. And, 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 and she said, and what did they do with the body? And Joseph said, well, I have to confess that, that I, gave them, I gave them our tomb. And she said, not the tomb that had been prepared for us. Not the tomb where we were going to lie together. You you gave him that tomb. And Joseph said, calm down, calm down. It's okay. He's only borrowing it for the weekend. (laughs) After three days, he rises from the dead. And he conquers death. Forever, and when the church is persecuted, and when the church suffers, and when men kneel on a beach, and their last word is Jesus, then the hope of the church is sure and certain. He has the gates; he has the keys to the gates of hell and Hades. He is the conqueror of death. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Well, we're going to close our meeting now by standing together and singing. I think we're going to sing. We.